This podcast contains themes of suicide and may upset some listeners. If you're struggling with your mental health and need to talk now, call Lifeline anytime. They're available 24 hours, seven days a week. You know, I'd have this great big grin on me and I was dying on the inside. This paralysis of just not being able to do things that gave me pleasure. I hated the world, hated the farm, ultimately wanted to sell it. Everything that was going wrong in my life was somebody else's fault. A lot of men and women will say, I just don't feel right. Aussies love the bush, but sometimes the bloody bush doesn't love us back. I'm John Harper. Just a simple joker talking about why mental health is everybody's business and what to do if you think a mate is struggling. This podcast is a Room 3 production and brought to you by our mates at Gotcha for Life and the Murrumbidgee Primary Health Network. In this podcast, you'll be hearing the lived experiences of everyday folk in rural and remote Australia. The language can be strong at times and references of suicide may upset some people. So consider who's around when listening. The advice in this podcast is of a general nature and is not an excuse for you not seeing your own GP or medical professional. Mate Helping Mate has plenty of links on our website of trusted service providers across the country. Head to matehelpingmate.org.au To this day, I'll never forget this. Mum went... What's going on? I'm really concerned about you. I can see traits of Adam, Adam's behaviour coming into you. I'd never take that step that I did um, because I know how much destroyed people's lives. I met a counsellor down in Ballarat. He sat there and said to me, I'm not God, you're not God, your brother's not Jesus. He's dead. It's really harsh reality, but he's not rising. You're not going to have him back in three days. He's gone. How about we stop talking about how bad your life is and we actually start to talk about what we can do to give you some skills to deal with life. It's not uncommon and it's fairly normal to be sad for a day or flat for a day and oftentimes something's happened to make you feel like that. Generally I get really concerned if people say that I'm really sad for three days. Three days, four days, five days, that's the time to really pull it up A lot of times it's generally a set of circumstances and when we break that down, there's every reason why you would feel sad. There's every reason you'd feel flat. There's there's a time where it starts, but there's also a time that will pass. Those circumstances will change and so your mood will change with those circumstances. So being sad, um, being alone or being flat is not uncommon. G'day Chris. Thanks for coming out to the farm and helping me out. No problems at all, Anton Chong. Beauty. And for the rest of you out there, this is going to be bloody riveting. And the main point that I want to make is that a problem shared is a problem halved. And I suppose that's the scariest thing for most of us blokes in particular is to be able to open up and let our emotions and, and what we feel out. Easy to talk about, harder to actually do. Chris and his brother Adam came to play football in Tamora. And to all of us, they were just two brothers, two ordinary Australian blokes who loved to laugh, have a beer. But in hindsight, we've realised that Adam had a darker side to him. So it developed from there, the story. And, And I'll let Chris move forward with that, I think. 
I've got a brother, Adam. He was um, Ad's 14 months younger than me. I moved when I was about probably 16 years old. I moved to Tamora for the first time uh, to take up an apprenticeship. And within that sort of next two years, Adam was doing 11 and 12. I brought him over to a party. Most people wouldn't know if they knew Ad, wouldn't actually ever think or assume that he had, had suffered from mental illness. Um, but that was the first time when he was 15, uh, sorry, 16, 17 years old. They actually told me that he was considering suicide. What did you think when he told you this, that he was considering suicide? Scared the crap out of me, to be honest, to start off with. So it was late at night. We went back to where I was living and that sort of thing. Sat up and talked to him all night. Obviously went and told mum and dad, especially like with mum and everything, the next day exactly what had happened. Did they have an inkling? Yeah, mum had. Just different things she'd told. Not as severe as what what he actually told me but she'd been aware of other things as well and just mood swings and that sort of thing after that we sort of moved our separate ways ad went to armadale to uni came home after a few years of enjoying himself didn't put a lot of effort into uni but really had a good time up at armadale and came home and then started working for my grandfather's real estate agent which was probably his niche in life started a family i'd finished my apprenticeship and done a lot of other things in between i had a young family as well and we actually both ended up in tamora so my take on on what's happened up to this stage was that adam basically he was traveling as far as everybody knew reasonable well yeah there was always different phases through things so he'd been to the doctors and everything been diagnosed with bipolar He'd go through his highs and lows. I know plenty of times when he was at uni, he'd ring up and say I'm really low. A lot of people didn't see when he was down. Yeah, it's about that time I probably had a bit more to do with Adam. They, um, and I can't think, I don't know whether it was you or not, but somebody tipped me off and just had a quiet word. But Adam was never comfortable in talking directly about his mental health with whoever, even on a low key with me, who was at that stage his coach and, and stuff like that, or involved in his coaching. And uh, yeah. I found a lot of the times when you'd say, I could pick it straight away and say, you're off me- your medication. Because of where his highs were, he'd be to the extreme. Um, you'd watch him, I was managing the pub at the time and working behind the bar there and that sort of thing. I'd finish work 11, 12 o'clock and he'd still be at work, going through and doing a whole new system, how he's going to do things. And he was on his man- manic sort of stage. Other times, I'd get a phone call saying, do you know where your brother is? He's meant to do an inspection. And one thing that Adam was always very thorough about, about was his work. He loved what he did. And as I said before, extremely good at it. Um, to find him sound asleep on the lounge, curled in a little ball, and he's been asleep for two, three hours. He's gone home for five minutes and went to sleep. And how were you travelling them days? How do you believe? I know it's hindsight now, but how were you going in them days? From my side of things, we had a job with our young family. We seemed to be doing okay financially. We had a house. We had a very large group of network of friends. Life always was fairly, in that way, easy for us. He probably found it a little bit harder at times. Well, I think he did. I mean, Adam seemed to be doing it tougher and you seemed to be, in italics, normal. Just having a a great time, basically. You know, unfortunately, we lost Adam and I regret it. I I have opposing sorts of emotions. So a couple of days before Adam died, he saw me. I was over in Griffith doing a job and he came over and he told me how good everything was that he'd 
worked out things with his miss. He had to break up with his missus. He'd worked out stuff with the kids, how they're going to deal with that. It started a new job and everything was great. And I just remember basically clapping him on the shoulder and saying, beauty, mate, that's great. You got things together. Great. In hindsight, I realised how bloody dumb I was really because it was too good. It was too good. He was telling me things that were just way too good. And I've always said, and I've told you, is on one hand, I'm that friggin' angry with Adam because he'd worked with us, he knew me. If he had just asked or just said one thing to give me an idea, I'm sure we I would have helped him. And then on the other hand, I feel so guilty because I go around preaching this stuff about looking out for your mates and doing whatever it takes, and, and I missed it. Yeah, far out. And that will haunt me to the day I die. I know every time it approaches Christmas, I think of freaking Adam. And that's probably something I really struggle with. Um, it took me a long time to deal with the fact that he didn't ring me. So there have been numerous occasions before when he was in that mindset. And really the fact that he didn't call me, I couldn't fix it. So at times, and like it was a real, I went through a real guilt stage about why didn't he ring me. Also, probably a bit of anger as well from my point of view to him and at times I still go through things like where I still even now after it'll be 10 years this December that I still go through things where I get cranky with him with mum and dad and they're still fairly young they're only in their early 60s with just watching his beautiful boys and that sort of thing that he's not here it's also the fact that I'd spoken to him that night just how happy he was that night And I know talking to a lot of the staff who were at that Christmas party and that sort of thing that he was okay. There was a few things which happened, nothing significant, but... Nothing significant for us. That's that's the interesting part too. And I think there was a lot of things. One thing um, I stated before, Adam was extremely good at what he did in real estate. He was so driven to make money. He had a um, goal in life that he was going to be a millionaire by the time he was 30. Kids were going to go to the best schools. They're going to have this, they're going to have that. And the fact he was coming out to his 30s and it was not a bad situation, but it wasn't where he wanted to be. So perhaps his life vision wasn't a realistic one. No. And that's, he made rash decisions and that was to do with his mental health. That he made very rash decisions for someone who was so calculated in 90% of his life. Well, I think we both agree in that final decision. Neither you or I agree with that. What happened with your life as you moved on post-Adam? So what was the progression? So that initial stage, once I died, was pretty much a lot about... I must do this. Then it was sort of a fact that, all right, I've got to support my sister-in-law and my nephews. I've got to support mum and dad. Probably wasn't until about um, I got given an opportunity to move to Ballarat for work. And not that I wanted to run away, but thought, new opportunity, I can go down there with my family. And not start fresh because I'm extremely close to my family, but I can go and do something just for us. So we moved down there. My wife's a social worker. She was working nights and everything because we didn't have that family connection. We had no real friends down there to babysit or do anything. And reality hit. Oh, shit. Ad's dead. I'm not enjoying my life. I hate work. I hate everything. And I loved what I did in general. But I went through a real stage where nothing was making me happy. My anxiety became a lot worse. I'd really struggled just to be in the car by myself for a couple of hours um, and thinking about what I haven't done and worst case scenario and one leads on to the other. 
did you think that you were suffering anxiety or anything or, or, or just that your world was shit? As I said, didn't actually hate my job. I just didn't realise at the time what was actually going on. I'm extremely lucky in the way that I have a very caring wife and a very caring mother and father. We actually came home for my father-in-law's birthday. And the day before I came home, we came home, my wife said to me, we need to do something, this isn't you. I had no Angie, I was snappy at the kids, I was snappy at her, never violent or anything like that, I just wasn't myself. I came home to mum, we got home on the Wednesday, Thursday night, and pretty much there's a park across the road from their house, and to this day I'll never forget this, um, mum went, come for a walk with me, and went, what's going on? I can see traits of Adam, Adam's behaviour coming into you. And the one thing I did promise, and I'll always swear by, is the fact that I'd never take that step that I did because I know how much destroyed, not destroyed, but devastated people's lives. So I'd never do anything like that, but it was more the fact I said to her, I just don't know how I can function. I hate, I hate everything at the moment. I don't, like I had the most, a beautiful wife and three beautiful kids. I was doing something that I always wanted to do. So your mother highlighted, I suppose, comments made by your wife Sheridan earlier how did you take Sheridan's comments initially and I say that from say my point of view is that I know there's times when my wife Michelle suggests something to me or makes a comment about me and I get probably a little bit pissed off that she's got the hide to say that I'm not quite up to scratch but I don't know. I'm very lucky to have the wife I have but Initially, it was jamming up your bum sort of thing. That <laughs> yeah, That's what I'd say too. Yeah, jamming up your bum, how would you know? But inside too, I knew. Mum and Cher are quite fr- like friendly, quite close. So mum and Cher had been talking as well. I suppose what I find interesting, obviously Sheridan had a problem, and that problem was you at that stage, but she shared it with somebody, yeah. your mother. Isn't that interesting? And then where did we go? I'd seen counsellors... After Ad's death and prior to Ballarat, one was talking about circumstances that didn't relate to me. Um, the other person was extremely lovely, but we just didn't le- learn any techniques. I always saw say that I met a counsellor down in Ballarat, very blunt. He sat there and said to me, I'm not God, you're not God, your brother's not Jesus, he's dead. It's really harsh reality, but he's not rising. You're not going to have him back in three days. He's gone. How about we stop talking about how bad your life is and we actually start to talk about what we can do to give you some skills to deal with life. And then we talked about meditation and I'm not someone I struggle to meditate. In the past, I've done a fair bit of running, done a fair bit of swimming and that sort of thing. And he explained to me that's a form of meditation. If I just focus on my breathing, focus on my steps, focus on that black line in the pool... So the biggest thing from there was I actually started telling a lot of friends and that too what was going on. Not to make, definitely the one thing I didn't want people to do was feel sorry for me, but just so people sort of knew this was what was going on with me. Well, one of the things from your story I find interesting is that uh, in your journey you tapped three counsellors and... The first two didn't work so well for you. The third one with a very blunt and, I suppose, in a fashion, brutal sense got through to you. 
But I suppose once again that highlights how you know there's horses for different courses. Chris, if we cut back to your life story, how hard was it to approach the counsellor Joker in Ballarat? It was more a realisation that shit, I've got to do something about this. With a lot of stuff around the fact that it's not fair on sharing the kids, it's not fair on mum and dad, it's not fair, and more than anything, it's not fair on me. What was the strategies that the counsellor wanted you to do? What are the strategies that you use now to improve your mental well-being? At the time, it was about talking to my brain, about different breathing, that sort of thing, about exercise, about things that I could change and not sort of stressing about things that I can't change, focus on what I can change. Chris, you've been through some bad times, I suppose, like a lot of us. Actually, I don't think bar Adam in in your story, I think a lot of the other stuff is, you know, many of us are living similar sorts of tales and you're going reasonably well or quite well, actually. But do you see problems around you? Do you see, say, mates struggling in that? What do you do? Biggest thing I find, something that I sort of try to tell everyone, is ask if people are doing okay. If I walk up to you and say, are you doing okay, you don't look it, all of a sudden it gives you a bit of permission to say, no, I'm not. doesn't feel like it has to be guarded anymore, that they're asking because they care. No, thanks, Chris, for, for coming out and uh, participating in the podcast and sharing your story. Um, I know at different times, particularly with Adam, yeah, I, I take up a little bit and I know how difficult that is, but I'm very pleased that you're in a position where you want to and you like to help others. Thanks, Chris. No, thanks very much for having me, John. This podcast has been made possible by our mates at the Gotcha for Life Foundation. Gotcha for Life was established to reverse the tide of declining mental health and to reduce suicide rates by taking action and having a positive outcome on mental health. Gotcha for Life enables communities to build mental fitness, social connection, emotional muscle and resilience. Head to gotchaforlife.org to catch events, get involved or donate. This podcast has also been brought to you by the Murrumbidgee Primary Health Network, also known as the MPHN for short. The MPHN's Empowering Our Communities grant is a government's way of walking the talk, demonstrating their commitment to supporting families and communities living with the impacts of drought, with a focus on mental health and wellbeing. G'day, you're back again. After talking with Chris about his story, but also obviously about his brother Adam, I've come to realise how important this reaching out is for help. And with me today, I've got a good mate, Posty. I call him Posty, but he ain't a postman. David Post is from Rural Outreach Counselling, a qualified social counsellor and is very active in counselling people who don't acknowledge they've got a problem and, and address it. You know, go to town, tap the GP Talk to counsellors, social counsellors, whatever. In the white coat world, it's called presenting, people who don't present. Posty and my friendship goes back more than 10 years. Posty, what makes you different? Why do you go out there to help others? 
Thanks, John. Yes, it would be easier just to sit there and wait for people to come through my door. Uh, my background is I'm a farm boy. Grew up on a farm, been around farms. Everything I've done all my life has had something to do with farming. So my passion for rural life, small communities, is what drives me to get out there. So that's probably a little bit different. And my focus is that if we can do any early intervention at all, that's where we're going to start, out there in the paddock. And that explains it, doesn't it? That theme I hope that people or you listeners got out of Chris's story was this reaching out, not just by Chris reaching out for support and and to getting help, but the reaching out by the people around him to help him or to start him on his journey. Reaching out, it not only comes from partners and families and that, it, it comes from your mates and it's just a shame that we we, we miss it from time to time and we lose really good people. And so the earlier we can um, have a connection, then the uh, the better chance we've got of helping someone to see that it doesn't have to be always a struggle. Even when they are struggling, it's about taking that small step to move forward. I know in my case, I really struggled to acknowledge that I had a mental health problem, that I had depression. Do you think that a lot of people don't go for help because they don't believe or they can't see that they have a problem? I think that's a really good point. It is that they don't see that they have a problem. However, in behind that, they really do know there is a problem there. They just struggle with admitting it to themselves a lot of the time. I'm starting to believe for people to be open to going to get help is that often I see the thing that gets them over that little hump is somebody showing that they really care about them, that they're prepared to put themselves out. People like Chris's parents, his partner, his family, they probably tried for months and months to get him to go and seek help. Yeah, I, I think you are right there, John. It doesn't necessarily always a partner. Not everyone has a partner and not always they're close to their family. Coming from a friend or a mate or someone that they know is pretty important for them. The big thing is about just making that decision to do something and making that decision to actually reach out and get some help. It's a hard thing to ask for help and it's the one thing that as a professional that I battle with to try and have people actually um, accept some help. And once people accept help, then we can really get the ball rolling. I'm forever surprised at how many times I see someone for the first time and they will say to me, no, I don't need counselling. I don't need any help because I've had help before and it didn't work. I'm just not interested. Some people feel that they've had help before and they feel like they can't go back and ask again. Yeah, it, it is interesting. I, I know with my discussion with people who have sought help and you, and you ask them, they say, oh, yeah, I, I went to the doctor and nothing good had come of it. And when you have a further discussion, you realise that they've gone to the GP, they've talked about everything else, but they, the patient or the person, hasn't specifically said to the doctor, I'm struggling. I've got some problems and I don't know what the hell they are. They won't actually put it out there. They, they're hoping somebody else will bring it up and then they can discuss it. And oftentimes this is the sad truth that people will end up at the doctors, male and female, but mostly guys, will turn up at the doctor and expect the doctor to know what they're there for. It's great if you're walking with a broken leg, you can see that. You're walking with a broken mind, nobody can see that. And unless you're willing to put it on the table, 
then uh, how is the doctor supposed to know? So do you connect with everybody you see? Do you Are you a man on a mission that whenever somebody walks in your door, you're the be-all and the end-all of it all? David Post, saviour. How does it work? Oh, I don't know about a saviour, but definitely a man on a mission and definitely do not connect with everyone. Jeez, if we were all exactly the same, it'd be an easy fix. So what when do you I do? don't connect with someone, then I generally will try and find someone else to connect. And oftentimes at that initial cup of coffee or initial office appointment or whatever it might be, then we can establish that. And that's part of what my professional role is. I see myself as, yep, I can I can support a lot of people, but I can't support everyone. So if I can't support them, then let's have a conversation about who might be able to support them. So you will actively look for somebody else to connect with, professional someone else to connect with them. I suppose from my point I see is that there's often a challenge for the person struggling in that if they don't connect basically with the first professional mental health person they're dealing with that's it they pull the plug they just think it's me and the point I'd like to make from what David has just said is that there's a hell of a lot of good people out there in the mental health services that want you to have a positive outcome and so I suppose what I would like to put to you is please reach out connect with these people if you don't form or get a trust and a confidence from your relationship with that particular person, don't just pull the plug. Please do not pull the plug. Look for somebody else. Reach out, please. Look, Posty, Chrissy McGregor was quite lucky in that he had people help him realise he was broken. But if you're sitting on your Pat Malone, if you're sitting out on the property, driving your tractor, there's no other bugger about, how the hell do you know you're broken in italics in regards to mental health? Most of us generally know when things are not right and the guy that's driving around out there on a the tractor, he's got a pretty good indication whether things are going well in his life or not going well. And that doesn't mean that it is about the farm or the amount of money he's making or anything like that. Just himself personally inside, is he feeling okay? Is he feeling sad? Is he feeling lonely? Is he feeling just flat? I think that's the one message that comes through to me. A lot lot of men and women will say, I just don't feel right. I just don't know whether I am ticking along the way that I used to a few years ago. And I'm not ticking along the way I would like to be into the future. So most people understand and and recognise themselves that something isn't quite right. And it doesn't matter whether they're alone or whether they've got family around them or not. Inherently, we know. Yeah, that's one of the strategies I've learned. So when I initially got whacked, was my wife finally got me to acknowledge I had a problem, whinging and nagging and carrying on. But nowadays, I still get flat at different times, and I have to sit and reflect at times. I, I quite like driving and riding a motorbike, of course, and then I often reflect. So at the moment, I'm flat, but there's a reason for it that is realistic. You know, I've got a mother who has had a fall, it's got to go respite, looks like 
going into accommodation. I've got a brother who's terminally ill with cancer. I've got another sister-in-law basically the same with cancer as well. So I'm flat and obviously there's genuine reasons for it. But the thing is, I put into place strategies to try and relieve that. It's not that I'm going to be happy at this stage because these this flat time will probably continue for a bit. But things like going up and spending 10 days sitting by my mother's bedside in hospital picks her up, makes me feel good. Tapping my brother while I can't do anything in regards to his cancer, he enjoys and appreciates the interaction with me which makes me feel good so they're the things so they're the kind of things that people would be looking at in regards to when they're feeling flat and sad and and not sure whether they need help or not yeah yeah it is all of those things actually and oftentimes it's it's sometimes more than that too sometimes they can take a few days away just to have a break away the other thing too for me it's it's like a lot of times it's generally a set of circumstances and when we break that down there's every reason why you would feel sad there's every reason you'd feel flat because of the circumstances so when we look at the circumstances and understand that it's it's not always just me it's the circumstances that you're in and when I talk to people around that and what those circumstances are then we're trying to frame it in there's there's a time where it starts but there's also a time where majority of the time that will pass and so those circumstances will change and so your mood will change with those circumstances so being sad um, being alone or being flat is not uncommon so it's quite normal to feel flat and and I'm also a bit like Chris McGregor. I, I'm not as active as Chris, but I do know that if I get off my bum and become proactive in some goal, some mission, I'm a lot better. Chris talks about running. He runs to help him through his times. What are the strategies you see help other people out there, the people you're dealing with? Are there any you promote? Are there any that you see other people using? I generally promote my own strategies uh, and that's where I get the opportunity to really encourage people to sort of look at what they're doing and how they do it. So things for myself. Yep, I can shoot across the road and grab a cup of coffee. I can go for that motorbike ride. Uh, I love going watching movies, go to the movies or go to the theatre. I love just even the simplest of... Can I pull you up there? When you go across for a coffee, when you go to the picture theatre... Do you do that on your Pat Malone? There's been times where I'll go on my own. There's been times where I'll go with my partner. Uh, there'll be times where I'll go with my partner and other family members. But I think the movies for me is about being in that space where you're there just to do one thing. So you focus on the movie. When I go across the road for a coffee, sometimes I'll go across the road and have a coffee on my own and just watch the traffic. Other times I will go across the road and have a coffee with uh, friends or a mate or someone that is just a regular at the coffee shop will just have a passing conversation. So both. I will have coffee on my own and I'll do things on my own, but I'll also do things with other people. But everyone's different again. And so different things will encourage people to do and think about different things. So sometimes, uh, I just spoke to someone recently, they were heading off to the races because that's what they really enjoyed. They weren't going for a bet. They were just going because they knew they were going to meet somebody else there. They knew that there'd be someone else there. Oh, the races flatten me. I put a bet on a horse, 10 to 1. Yeah, 
It didn't finish till quarter past four. Yeah, you can't bet like that, John. <laughs> That's a joke, people. That's a joke. Uh, but this person was actually not even going to have a bet. So whether the horse was running at 10 to 1 or whether you put it on and it's still run at 10 to 4, then doesn't matter. The uh, They were their social, that was a social outlet for them. Um, one of the things I do promote is to get out and just spend some time, go to a barbecue, even if it's only a barbecue next door, go and have a barbecue, go catch up with your mates in town, go and just be with other people. And even if that's only for an hour, then it's better than being isolated all the time. And I face this all the time with people stuck on farms, especially in drought conditions. The other thing too is the simpler that something actually is, the better the result. So one of the other things that I suggest it's quite interesting around majority of country towns there is either a um, a lake or a lagoon or a park or something in the middle of town that people can actually go and sit beside and there's nothing like a little bit of water to sort of help people feel a little bit better so one of the things that I add into that is slip into the local bakery and pick up a bread roll and go and pull it apart and throw it out to the ducks or the birds down no at the... No way I'd do that. A fresh bread roll, you can't bloody beat, I can tell you. And, well, it's good. You can have half and the ducks can have the other half. So just the simplest things help people sort of take a bit of an opportunity to reflect. And the other thing, too, is a lot of times people can't change the circumstances. So you talking about your circumstances, you can't change that. So how do you work your way through it? How do you add in a little bit of something that gives you an opportunity to just distance yourself or disconnect? Yeah, during the last drought, when you're talking about simple things, it was the simple get-togethers that worked for us. And we did things like yabby days where it wasn't about catching the most yabbies and we'd just put them on a round table, draw a circle, first one off would win. We did things like tennis days where we swept gravel road intersections and we pulled a net up on the bull bars of utes and we marked out the courts. Shit tennis, but great fun. There was a hell of a lot of laughter. Amongst all the shit of the drought, there was laughter. And for that period of time, most people felt good, felt better. And that's better than feeling shit 24-7. Totally agree, John. When things are tough, sometimes that um, that ability to disconnect is through laughter. And so laughing and being part of something is a great way of being able to change some of the circumstances. Uh, you can't fix them, but you can do a little bit about how you look at them. If you're out there and you think your mates are struggling, think about those sorts of things. And I'm telling you, you'll be better off yourself as well. The crazier it is, the more fun it is, the more ability to actually leave everything behind for a half an hour, an hour, two hours. And it doesn't have to be expensive or complicated. Look, in talking about reflection on why you're sad and that, how long? It's not uncommon and it's fairly normal to be sad for a day or flat for a day and um, oftentimes there's a, a, something's happened to make you feel like that. Generally, I get really concerned if people say that I'm really sad for three days. Three days, four days, five days, that's the time to really pull it up. So we should go back to your original advice because this podcast and what we're trying to do is about prevention and early intervention. Really reflect, really 
look at reaching out if you're sad for two or three days. Yeah, early intervention for me is definitely if you're sad for two or three days or flat or just low motivation for three days, talk to a mate. Just talk to anyone. Talk, just mention it. It doesn't mean that you have to race straight off to the doctor. After three days of feeling flat or sad, that's time to say, well, holy dooly, And if what you do can put in those early strategies you talked about, exercise, cup of coffee with mates, you know, as long as you don't go to excess, it might be the odd beer with mates or go for a fish, whatever else. You put in place those early strategies, there's a fair chance you won't fall into crisis. Thanks, Posty. Well, we're not going to go and self-medicate, but uh, Posty and I and AJ, the producer, we're going to slip across the road to the Vic Hotel in Wagga and have an ale and enjoy our friendship. So thank you, Posty. Thanks, mate. In finishing, a reminder that this podcast featured general information only, and we recommend that you get independent advice from a qualified professional like your GP. There's plenty of links on the Mate Helping Mate website as well, so you can contact service providers across the country. Head to matehelpingmate.org.au. If you're struggling with your mental health and need to talk now, please don't hesitate to call Lifeline on 13 11 14. They're available 24 hours, seven days a week. This podcast was a Room 3 production and brought to you by our mates at Gotcha for Life and the Murrumbidgee Primary Health Network. We'd also like to thank Riverina Bluebell and David Post at Rock or Rural Outreach Counselling for their support. You can find out more about these organisations and the great work that they do on our Mate Helping Mate website. Other episodes of this podcast can be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher Radio by searching for Mate Helping Mate and hitting subscribe. If you've liked what you've heard, make sure you leave a rating to make it easier for others to find us. You can also head to the Mate Helping Mate website and listen there. And better yet, you can share those links with your friends and family to start a conversation about mental health in the bush. This podcast was produced by Aaron Johnson, Kayla Robertson and AJ Clifford for Room 3, a production company that works with not-for-profits and social enterprise across Australia. We owe a big thanks to David Post from Rock for offering his advice today and also Chris McGregor for heading out to the farm and telling his story. And finally, we've got to thank the man himself, John Harper, for all the years he's travelled this country, tirelessly working to improve mental health in rural and remote Australia. And there's also Mitch for all of her support for John throughout the years and her hospitality to our crew and all the guests who have come out to the farm during this time. Recorded and edited by AJ Clifford. Original music by Southwark Sounds and stock by Soundstripe. Thank you for listening, hoping you can move forward, and we hope this makes a difference. Listener.